Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So there are multiple ways for us to begin the conversation. Tonight is a conversation about um, chosenness and specifically the Torah brachot, the blessings that we recite when we have an aliyah to the Torah. It is both expansive when it comes to the question of what is traditional practice, what are the meanings behind them, it's also practical, which is the design of this larger context series, how to take big ideas that are all related to the ways that we function ritually as a community, perhaps individually. Um, and so this is a big theological question with a very practical application in our community. I also want to just make note that this is going to be part of a podcast series uh, with the Jcast Network, for those who know. Uh, it's a wonderful um, network of people producing commentaries on Talmud, sharing thoughts on Jewish life. So we have had an ongoing uh, Ask the Rabbi section uh, on the JCast network uh, where this will be eventually uploaded. Let's not duck any of the questions. Since we said the bracha for Torah learning, which by the way, historically, is one of the only blessings that has content, that has its form spelled out in the Talmud, which used to be one of the brachot that you would recite before the public recitation of Torah, so in fact, there's a little bit of uh, sort of living out the learning, even in the inception of our conversation. Let's look down into the Chumash. One of the roots, maybe not the root, of the blessing of chosenness. And we'll talk about what chosenness means, what it doesn't mean, different permutations of it. One of those sources is in the Torah itself. It's on page 1029 in the Eitz Chaim that you're holding, which is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. Just a, a drop of framing so that we can go into this uh, open-eyed. Ve'et Hanan literally means, and I begged. Um, Moses is begging for the chance to go into the land. He's not going to be granted that chance. It is a very, very painful section of the text. And the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses saying goodbye. Is Moses' very long goodbye where he does a retelling of the entire Exodus story. The people's story until this point. So... What I think we should pay attention to, even in these initial thoughts, is what is the tenor of his heart? Not only what do the words mean, what is he deep, 
deep down saying. So looking at chapter 7, and we'll use this translation. It's the JPS translation. It's only as perfect as a translation can be. When Adonai, your God, brings you to the land that you are about to enter and possess, this is Moses speaking from the other side of the Jordan, and God dislodges many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Prezites, Chivites, Yebusites, seven nations much larger than you, and Adonai, your God, delivers them to you and you defeat them. You must doom them to destruction. Grant them no terms, give them no quarter. You shall not intermarry them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from me to worship other gods, and Adonai's anger will blaze forth against you, and God will promptly wipe you out. Instead, this is what you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their sacred posts, and consign their images to the fire. Now comes the language that really does hint at the bracha, the blessing language we'll see. For you are a people, am kadosh ata, consecrated to Adonai your God. Of all the peoples on earth, Adonai your God chose you to be God's treasured people. It's not because you are the most numerous of peoples that Adonai set God's heart on you and chose you. Indeed, you are the smallest of peoples. But it was because Adonai favored you and kept the oath God made to your ancestors that Adonai freed you with a mighty hand and rescued you from the house of bondage, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we'll stop there for now. There certainly is a lot to talk about. What I wanted to do was not duck it. If we're going to have a conversation that has been termed chosenness by many, including participants, including observers, including critics, including fans of traditional bracha language, we have to deal with the Torah's notion of what it is to be God's people. It is a very complicated thing to say in the modern world. It hopefully makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes me very uncomfortable at the very least. And I I want you to feel uncomfortable about it because I think chosenness leads to questions of quality, leads to questions of increasing and decreasing worth. If God chooses me, it might be what Erwin Kula has said, if I believe I have more God than you, I go and get a gun. Because in fact, that is what religion does when used as a weapon in the world. And in fact, in many times it is. And it would be disingenuous to say that the Torah doesn't see it that way too. The Torah says that God says, and you can deal with where you think the Torah came from. It's actually less important to our conversation tonight. But the Torah says that God says, I will dis- dis- uh, disperse, uh, you will destroy all of the nations that were in the land. And the reason why you should do that, that I, God, want you to do that, is because I promised your ancestors that this would be for you. I didn't choose you because you're big. You're not big. You're small. I didn't choose you, though the text doesn't say this explicitly. I didn't choose you because you're good. I don't know if you're good, says God. Let's see how you are, because if you're not good, I'll wipe you out too. And so chosenness is not necessarily a permanent state, but for the Torah, chosenness is a divine state. And one people can be chosen. I choose you, conditionally perhaps, says God. But I promised your ancestors that I would do this for you. I am doing this for you. And the language in verse 6 is where we will begin. The language of verse 6, again, in the English, for you are a people, Consecrated. Consecrated is the word kadosh, holy. But we don't really know what that means. Commentators and scholars have struggled for a very long time. What does holy mean? In you did God, did Adonai your God choose you. To be gods, to be an amskula, to be our particular people. Skula can also mean a treasured people. There are a lot of ways for us to interpret the words, but there is no ducking its clear intent. We are special. We are different, 
And you and I might not like the implication, but it also means we are better than or more chosen than. Great. Everyone feel good? Good. I'm going to put the chumash down for a moment. Now, the page that you have in front of you is uh, a double-sided copy. Does anyone still not have a copy? Okay. One side of the page is a, uh, is a copy from the Sidur, the Reconstructionist Sidur, Kolan Shama. This happens to be from the Kolan Shama, from the Reconstructionist Press, uh, that's printed for Shabbat and holidays. There are two volumes in this uh, specific iteration. Um, this one is for Shabbat and holidays, and the other one is for weekdays. On the other side of this page is uh, from a Sidur that I created, a transliterated one that we use here. It's called Sidur Tov Leodot, and it includes the language that would be called traditional. Before we even look at the language, though I'm sure, sure some of us are familiar with both, with either side, maybe both sides, um, when I say traditional, it is a really, really important word, and it's not definable. It's not, it's not definable, not even in a community, let alone between communities. And so one of the things I want to say is, um, when I'm using the word traditional here, what I mean is older. It doesn't mean better. It doesn't mean more authentic. It means older. Inherited, maybe, is another way of saying traditional. When someone hands something down generation to generation, even if it changes a little bit, it's traditional. The best demonstration of this is an argument I used to have with my father. When I was uh, a teenager, I would go to USY, the youth group in my synagogue, and then we would go to conventions. At the conventions, you had two prayer choices, traditional or egalitarian. So I remember coming home and saying, Abba, it's not traditional or egalitarian. Egalitarian is traditional. And he would say, Menachem, I fought for that. It's not traditional. And I say, Abba, Ima wears a talit. It's traditional. My mother wears a talit. That's tradition. So even within that small vignette, it is clear that it's not clear. That even within one generation, the definition shifts. And even within one generation, the definition might not be agreed upon. When I say the traditional bracha, what I mean is this bracha. When you look at the ancient sources, sometimes the content of a blessing is missing. We know that there is a blessing, but what is the blessing? Well, that can be quite confusing. We'll get to that in a moment. But it is important to say that within the tradition of what we now call Jewish denominations, including the Reconstructionist movement, whose uh, prayer formula language is, list is on the back, um, very few, even the classic reformers in the late 1800s, changed the Hebrew. We'll get to why they might have wanted to. Why actually a lot, including the conservative movement, and even those in the Orthodox world, would want to change the, the language. The translations were radically different. The translations tried to interpret away the thorniest parts of the Hebrew. But there were those who began changing it, uh, and we'll get to the history in a moment after looking at the language of the blessing itself. One last word of framing. Since this is also a practical question and not just a review of theory and, a, and an out loud conversation, this is what are we going to do as a shul? So the first thing I want to do is share a very short story that involves my friend Max. About three months ago, we had a beautiful Shabbat uh, celebrating the birthday of Marsha Brooks, who's just a beloved member of our community. Um, and she wanted to honor friends and people she feels close to, including her teachers, include my teacher, Max. Uh, Max came up to the uh, Aliyah to say the bracha, the blessing, uh, over the Torah. And the language that he used was not the language that we typically use here. And I made what might not have been the best decision, and so I get the chance to apologize to you personally in public. Uh, and also to acknowledge some of my thinking, which doesn't validate my decision. It just means that out loud thinking in the context of actually apologizing to you might help somebody somewhere. Um, but I, I look at you and apologize. 
That morning, um, the decision that I made was because the God language changed. It wasn't exactly the Baruch Atah Adonai part, but the theology of the blessing itself was different because the Reconstructionist formula of the bracha that Max was using is not the one that we use, and because it was a blessing itself, not verses, that sometimes we have an anthology approach to verses. Not every verse needs to be recited to every prayer. It's complicated. Please take my word that you should include everything you think you should include. And if you have a question, ask me well in advance so we can talk it through. Um, but in the question of Jewish law, the formula of a blessing needs to be recited very specifically. As a community, and this is me giving psak, this is me saying this is our ruling, which is not an open conversation tonight. What this all means is the open conversation, not are we going to change our policy. Our policy is that the blessing that someone recites for the Torah is the traditional one, which is in our Sidur, and there is one small variation that we'll get to. So we can look at it now. This is the traditional blessing at Netivot Shalom. So look at the side that says on the top of it, Sidur Tov Lehodot. Someone comes up to the Torah, and they are shown the place in the Torah where the reading is about to begin. They take the corner of their talit, the tzitzit, they touch the place, they kiss it to their lips, and they say, please don't answer it, I'm not doing this for real. <laughs> they say, Baruch et Adonai hamvorach, and the language that they used is actually not a blessing. It looks like a blessing because the word Baruch is the same word as Baruch. It's actually related to the word Berech, which means knee, because in the act of blessing, I am humbled, my knee bends. Baruch means bless God. So the person begins the Aliyah not by saying the blessing, but by saying, you all say the blessing. And then the community responds with the very next line. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Va'ed. We say, we the gathered say, blessed is God forever and ever. Right, there's a very interesting history to these parts. This is not going to be the core of tonight's conversation. The next paragraph will. So when the person who receives the Aliyah repeats that line, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Va'ed, they continue. This is what they say. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim, V'natan Lanu Et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah. And everyone says, Amen. Now, here is one translation of that blessing. Let's really look at it. Baruch Ata Adonai, so many different ways of translating it. The Sim Shalom, the conservative movement, Sidur, ducks the word Baruch. Instead of saying, blessed are you, God, it says, praised are you, God. Because theologically, the editors believed that to bless is to add to something. And what can you add to God, said the editors? I can't. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that being a human being is both being within and outside of God so that we actually have something to add. We are, as some philosophers have suggested, eruptions of the divine. Right? We have something to add to the universe, and that's why God needs us. Otherwise, we are just God playing with, within God. That might be great, but I don't think it's enough. So, blessed are you, Adonai. Right? Atah is the very familiar. Blessed are you, right here, intimate God. Adonai, this big name which means love and compassion. Eloheinu melech haolam, I go from this intimate to now this exalted Eloheinu. Our Elohim, which means judge, our ruler God. It's a different mask of God, as Campbell would have said. Melech haolam, ruler of the universe. Um, some say sovereign because it sometimes had been translated as king. And here's the part that will be the core of our conversation. Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, who chose in us, or chose us, mikol ha'amim, from all the other nations, 
v'natan lanu et torato, and gave us God's Torah. Baruch ata Adonai, blessed are you God, noten ha-Torah, giver of the Torah. Now we'll come back and talk about this in a moment, but just so that we can have the whole set, and so anyone who might be learning um, somewhere out there on YouTube or on SoundCloud or on Jcast, they'll have the last bracha, but first, Jeff? Yeah. I, and I've never just hearing um, two actions. Right? Interesting. Is there, was that a or has that in other terms? That That is a great question. I'd have to, a bit, to do a better review, but you're right. There are two actions, very, very explicit here. I chose you, I gave to you. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the, the tense has been um, something that Hasidic commentators have pointed out also. The two that you pointed out are in the same tense. Uh, Bachar, chose, Natan, gave. But then you go from Vinatan, gave, until Notain HaTorah, in the present, which many have suggested, even the Hasidic commentators, that Torah is not done being given. Right? God gives Torah, it's not gave. So to your point, yes, they are two very distinct verbs. Um, connected and not the same. So that second bracha, it's on the right column of the same side of the page. After the Torah reader is finished with that specific aliyah, the person who receives the aliyah takes the corner of their talit and either kisses the place where the Torah is read, but that's actually not required. People don't know this. You can also touch just the side of the Torah. Right? All of this is within the realm of custom. I touch the place where it was read, not because I have to, but because everyone expects me to, and I don't want to have to correct them for correcting me. <laughs> That's sometimes how tradition gets, in, gets created, by people trying not to push their traditions into other people's faces, which is better than the other way tradition is created, which is pushing your tradition into someone else's face. Um, so you take the talit, you kiss the place, kiss it, and you say, Baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, so this translation again is, Blessed are you, Adonai, Eloheinu, our God, ruler of the universe, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Amet, who gave us the Torah of truth, a true Torah, Vichaye Olam Nata Betochenu, and eternal life planted within us. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. And I'll just riff for half a second on that last blessing, which for me is one of the most beautiful ones. Isn't it amazing that it says, God, you gave us a Torah of truth and eternal life you planted in us, right? I sort of, sort of, there are moments where I wish I felt more alive. And we get to hear this at least seven times a Shabbat, right? There is life in there. And it's in the plural. So the fact that we have to show up together to do this bracha is quite powerful. Life eternal might actually happen better when you're with other people. I'm into that. Similar to, to my answer to Jeff. They're separate, but it would be, I think, inaccurate to read them as distinct. Right? They might be stages of what Torah is in life. And if we wanted to be sort of a, a postmodern spiritual person reader, experiencer, we would say something like, um, Torah is amazing. I also have this deep life. Right? And it leads me to tap into Torah. But for those who... Um, who I experience life with, who are Jewish and not, life is within us, and I love my Torah. Right? There could be a gentler way of reading it. I'm intentionally pushing it from the Hebrew a little bit to get to something nice. Okay, before we have a conversation about the content, let's look at the flip side of the page. You'll notice uh, from the Kol Shema, from the Reconstructionist Sidur, that the Baruch line is the same. The Baruch line is the same. You'll notice that the second Hebrew paragraph is the same. So interestingly enough, 
Some of us might believe, well, if you're in a Reconstructionist community or you identify as a Reconstructionist Jew, not only is your theology of chosenness different, your theology is different. Mordechai Kaplan famously said that God is the power that makes for salvation. God is the power that makes for salvation is different than God is the being that gave me Torah. And so the fact that some of the language is the same is quite powerful. We'll get to the translation in a moment. But where it differs is in the first extended blessing. So it starts with Baruch Ata Adonai, blessed are you Adonai, continues Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, ruler of the uni- our God, ruler of the universe, Asher Kervanu LaAvodato, who brought us close to God's worship, to God's service, Vinatan Lanu Etorato, now that's back to the quote traditional language, and gave us God's Torah, Baruch Ata Adonai, blessed are you God, Notein HaTorah, giver of the Torah. So the significant difference between this blessing, the Reconstructionist version of the Torah blessing, and what I was calling traditional, which means ours, <laughs> um, is the phrase, Asher Bachar Banu, who chose us, or Asher Kervanu Laavodato, who brought us close to God's service. And what is quite powerful is that even if you are one who says the blessing on the... Well, I don't want to use the word tradition anymore. Use the blessing on either side. You probably affirm the belief of the other side, not to the exclusion of your own. So it's not that if I say the Reconstructionist blessing, I believe that I'm chosen and no one else is. But there is likely a way that in Reconstructionist theology, and I know there is, that chosenness is re-understood. It's a radical re-understanding. But chosenness is not an impossible theological idea. Just takes a lot of stretching. So too is being called to God's service because as someone who believes that we as a community are called to God's service, I am afraid when someone says, I'm doing what God wants me to do. So I have to, at least personally, re-understand it away from the fundamentalism that would lead me in service of God to hurt someone, which some people who claim to be acting in the name of God would do. All of us have an interpretive process. So look at the translation here on the reconstruction side of the page. This is straight from the Kolan Shema. So Baruchu et Adonai Mvorach is translated as bless the infinite, the blessed one. First of all, the emphatic nature of the English helps me remember that the person saying it is telling me to do it. So the grammar is actually more helpful than on the, on the conservative Jewish side. The response is blessed is the infinite, the blessed one, now and forever. Okay, grammatically sound, emphatic, and exclamation point is great. Now, the first extended blessing. Blessed are you, eternal one. Why eternal one for Adonai? Because the Yud and the Yud actually do point to eternity. It's a complicated way of reading what God's name might be. It's not our topic for tonight. Eternal one is a beautiful translation. Our God, the sovereign of all worlds. Okay, interesting. That's actually not what Ha'olam means. It means the universe, not Olamot. But okay, world, worlds. I believe in dimensions. I watch Doctor Who. (laughs) <laughs> who has drawn us into your service. Okay? That's the distinct one in the, conser- in the Reconstructionist side of the page. And has given us your Torah. Given us your Torah is actually not what the Hebrew says, Torah to. The problem is it's in the possessive, it's smichut, and it includes his Torah. It's a gendered possessive. And so it's saying his Torah, meaning God's Torah. But to go from God's Torah, which would still be grammatically the same as his Torah, even though uh, politically dicey differently, um, to go from saying God's Torah to your Torah is actually a big theological shift, but okay. Um, blessed are you, eternal one, who gives the Torah. So um, just to review one small piece of history and then to have the conversation that we came to have. The one small piece of history is that even within the reform movement, 
The, tr the translation may have changed, but the Hebrew stayed the same. There were some radical reform lit liturgists, people who edited and organized Reform Sidurim, who changed the language and excised language of chosenness, but they were in the minority even in the reform movement. Mordechai Kaplan, who was the founder of the Reconstructionist movement, and Reconstructionism is bigger than Mordechai Kaplan um, imagined it to be. It has become more, first of all, it's changed over time, and it's also made up of many thinkers who are not only him. Um, Reconstructionism was the first big shift liturgically in this blessing. And so pretty much the entire Jewish world, with small exceptions, says it the way that we have it on the Sidur Tov Leodot side. That doesn't mean that every Jew must in order to be a Jew. It doesn't mean that there's one authentic Jewish practice. But as a community, we will be saying it this way. And the one exception I will tell you is to the word me. And uh, this will be the last thing that I sort of present before soliciting feedback and questions and comments. When we say, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Ha'amim, says, God, you chose us from all other nations. There are two very small shifts that in the ritual committee we had decided here a few years ago. And then uh, Rabbi Avi Novus Deutsch, who was our visiting Masorti scholar, who is now Rabbi Kfar Vadim in Israel, made another uh, suggestion which, uh, which we accept for the shul. So when you come up for an aliyah, you can say, Asher Bachar Banu Mi Kol Ha'amim, who chose us from the other nations, as it says here. You can say Asher Bachar Banu Im Kol Ha'amim, who chose us with the other nations. And you can also say Asher Bachar Banu Vechol Ha'amim, you chose us and the other nations. The reason for the acceptability of that, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Omerman, who some of us know, is just a, a loved teacher in our community as well, said because it's graceful and doesn't interrupt the flow. There's something traditional about the feel of the words and the radical rewriting of the theological meaning, meaning I'm chosen, but so are you. I'm chosen with the rest of the world. Right? Those are huge statements, but there's something about the language that is retained which feels different. I don't have a different answer to that question than those, but we as a community have decided that those are two acceptable variations. They are small differences linguistically, huge differences theologically, and the way that I can use a proof text, which is not going to be uh, an actual proof text, is there's a Shabbat song, Friday nights, that I used to sing at Camp Ramah in Nyack. I used to work in the day camp there for a long time. And the rabbi of the camp, one of the rabbis, Rabbi Stanley Bramnick, uh, loved to sing. So I would sit with him and we would sing. Uh, I was very scared of him and uh, I just wanted to be near him. And so we would sing. And one of the songs... Instead of saying Adonai for God, I would say Hashem. It's one of the nicknames, the name. And he cornered me about it. And he said, Menachem, why, why, are, why aren't you saying God's name? And I said, well, uh, you know, it's a song. It's, it's, not, it's not prayer. He said, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're praying when you're singing. <laughs> and I said, I said yeah, okay. Uh, and I like struggled to find a reason that would impress Rabbi Bramnick and couldn't. So finally, just threw up my hands. I said, you know, it just fits the music better. <laughs> and he said, that's an answer. <laughs> and there's something to that. It is so hard to put my finger, maybe for you to sort of, but there are things in our life sometimes that are based on the chush, on the feel. And so the best I can say about those two variations that even though they're theologically so different, they're not perceptibly different necessarily. There's something smooth about them. In the way that Asher Kervanu is a very for me, a very different sound and feel. It is a sizable step away from the traditional language. Even though theologically for me, I dig it. I dig it. I like it.
So let's take the break for the moment. And uh, I'm curious, let's make sure that when we're commenting, when we're asking, we're talking less than I have so far so that, so that we can all sort of be heard. Um, and I'm, I am really glad that we're together, especially because in a moment of, um, of unclarity, of not having clarity, when our practice wasn't understood fully before, it led to an encounter that wasn't perfectly handled. And I would much rather us have the conversation and do our best to understand the parameters of our policy so that no one gets into a situation uh, that is uncomfortable. So both because I love the brachot and also because I like when we treat each other kindly. Uh, I'm glad that we're here. So, questions and comments? Um, yes, I like it because I want to be close to God. No, we are not using it as our liturgy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think... Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you're pointing out is that even in the Reconstructionist reformulation of the blessing, there is the hint of skula, which is in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy that we started with, which is potentially the most problematic of all the ways of seeing chosenness, which is... Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it is thorny no matter what. I mean, the, the question of how the particular of any group, but in this case, it's our tribe, let's just use that word, how our tribe interacts with other tribes in the world. I think it's a very big question. And even in this reformulation, Kervanu Vodato, you brought us close to your, to serve, not you actually, to serve God. It's in the third person. So it could mean brought us close, not them. Could, could very well mean that. Others? Next. Yeah. In the original 40, a fairly lengthy theology, <clears throat> he says, this is sort of analogous, Abam, quasi, and their sacrifice. He says, the origin is only Israel, and therefore appropriate, chosen. It's not relevant, modern. So saying, saying that that's a we are or what doesn't say anything about any others. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it could be just as possible, since we're trying to find the best, and Kaplan said it explicitly about his own theology, it could be just as possible to say, Asher Bachar Mikola Mim is also not more than any other nation is chosen from other nations. Christians and Muslims also believe that they are doing what God wants. And even within Islam, the hierarchy of which prophet spoke the most recent iteration of God's truth is a very big question. But they do believe, as I think every faith tradition does, that it, it might not have the market on truth, but its truth is true. And so I think that it is uh, possible to read from the original language a theology that's more kindred to Kaplan than Kaplan felt it could be. I think the power of a traditional liturgy is similar to the power of Torah. I mean, we kiss the Torah and it says some pretty ugly things. So the question is, what does that mean? And I think that the traditional Jewish answer, which is not, you know, the domain of only one branch of Judaism, I think the traditional Jewish answer is we engage, we wrestle. Sometimes it hurts a lot. And it might even be that this language cannot sustain the rereading that I'm suggesting, which is not my new suggestion. It could be that in the recitation of the blessing, I have to grapple with how I look at other people. The, the whole notion of what it is to be in Amskula or in Deuteronomy 7, Kadosh, Am Kadosh, right? There are those, like Rashi, who's quoting Midrash Rabbah, who suggest that the, the command to be holy, Kadoshim to you, from chapter 19 of Leviticus, has to be understood as Prushim to you. Be separate, be different. And so the reason for so many different Jewish traditions, including not shaving you know, the corners of our heads and all sorts of different ones, tattoos, for instance, are to be distinct from the others. Don't do, and chukot goyim, the laws of the other nations, we don't do that. It leads to the interpretation of keeping kosher, that leads, you might see these on labels, right? Chalav Yisrael, you might have seen, or Pat Yisrael, which I always love, is from Berkeley, you know, so Pat Yisrael sounds really fun. 
Uh, no one's laughing at that, but it was pretty funny. Shechar uh, Yisrael, you didn't get it? Pot? It's pot? Okay, I'll just be explicit high up there. Um, but pot actually is the Aramaic word for loaf of bread. So it means bread that it was made only by a Jew. And challah Yisrael means a dairy product only, uh, only done by a Jew. Why? Well, you could say it's the internal economy of the Jews who've been marginalized from every other market, and so we needed to produce for ourselves. That's actually not the reason for the development. It just makes it sound nicer. Right? The reason for the development is I don't trust the non-Jews and their production. It's not really about kashrut. It's I don't want to be in contact with them. The reason why I can't have wine made by a non-Jew officially is because it might be used for an idol libation. But even in the codes, it's because I don't want to be near them. The problem with the interpretation of Judaism that leads to not only tribalism, but xenophobia and mistrust of every other, which also has to do with um, despising their theology. Their God is not God. It's the line from Isaiah that we no longer say, but used to be in the Elenu. It says, They bow down to spit and nothingness and pray to a God who won't save them. That is certainly within Jewish language and literature. It is, un- God bless you. it is unacceptable, but we would be lying if we said it isn't in there. The same is true of every faith tradition. So the question is, how do we grapple with our own darker side? And one of the reactions can be, I want to rewrite everything that has a hint of it. And that's understandable. I don't want to disparage that response. It is also possible to say, I can't live with those theological truths. I can't. I'm going to reread everything. I'm going to force a new meaning into it. And what Emmanuel Levinas, a French Jewish philosopher, said about Torah is, I think, very helpful here. He said, what makes Torah holy? What makes Torah holy is not who gave it. What makes Torah holy is its infinite possible meanings. So why would that be true? Why would I bend over backwards to find charitable readings of other religions that have explicit statements about me, the Jew? Why would I bend over backwards to find the beauty in theirs and not bend over backwards to find the beauty in my own. Isn't it possible, if we are that creative, to find the possibilities in these words? Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim. What can that mean? It means I am proud to be a Jew. I am different. I'm not different because some they is going to hurt me. I am not different because I'm commanded by God to hurt them. I'm not different and better because God wants me to have a good destiny and doesn't care about them. I'm not better or different for all of those reasons. I'm not better at all, actually. Just like all of them, which if you look closely at chapter 7 of Deuteronomy that we read, says, because I'm just as susceptible to not faring well based on my own needs. Even God's promise to Israel is conditional. So why not have a Jewish particular identity in the world? But I think what I want idea of Pride and be eternal from public performance and public. It was striking at the beginning from that the seven, uh, all of their trapping was not, at least not stated, bad about them, but what happened to our, our relationship with God, our observance. All the, um, the, the Torah story, I mean, as you described, Torah asks, you know, asks the rest of that. Um, it's a public One of the, you know, I've, I've stood there and said, as Shelley is, that's precisely the office. I mean, by, by the sound, precisely the office, you could argue, but it's the office. But what I feel like I'm doing it, avoiding what sort of sneak. Most people not notice because it's close enough to what we're going to notice. Is that better? You know, it, it, are, it, but keep not ruffling feathers. Anyone else to confront. Is that better than not that I 
But you know, there's a middle ground where there are some things, and this may be one, that we, and it feels, I stood there and said, that one, construction's blessing, this quake, it has felt. And so I think on the one hand, we can talk about, but we're also talking about a public act with and for the, of how we, you know, and how we, and I guess what I, what I really ask most about this, is it better that we slide by that quiet or better than Yeah, I appreciate your question a lot. Um, a lot of things, I, also a lot of things to respond with. One of them is that, um, is it better is a hard question to answer, so I won't answer it like that, because um, that's not nice. I, I, I couldn't answer that and, and look you in the eyes and actually be talking to you. Um, what I would say is that we're going to do it that way, Sherbachar uh, Banumi, or Im, or Ve. And um, if we are looking, I'll sort of respond in this sort of circuitous way, but it'll get to the point. If we are looking for all the parts of the performance of the Torah service, or even beyond, the, the whole davening, um, and we actually analyze what it means, we should be really uncomfortable. The framing of the entire Torah service is a military procession. Vayhibin Saaron and Eitzchayim are both military statements. We follow the Torah into war. That's what we're doing. If we wanted to reduce that somewhat, because that's actually the context in the book of Numbers and elsewhere where those texts appear, um, if we wanted to look elsewhere, we could talk about the hierarchy of the Torah being dressed like the high priest, which is also not a value that we uh, include as a community. There is no high priest. Even the rabbi isn't the high priest here. Um, and so one of the things that I would point out is if we're looking for the sincerity of our universalism within our particular, which in varying manifestations we actually, I think, all agree about, that there are commitments we have as human beings that have to define our Jewishness. How that spells out is very different, person to person, family to family, community to community, but we could agree in general with that statement. Um, I think that for a lot of people, Asher Bachar Banu Im is pretty jarring, and Asher Bachar Banu Ve is pretty jarring. And there are other things to say about that as well, which is it might be a public declaration, but it's in Hebrew. And there's a long history about Hebrew davening also including Aramaic, so that Jews could say things freely that they just weren't actually able to say publicly. So there's a lot about the language that we're saying it in, let alone the, the words themselves. So I'm not dismissing the question of prayer as protest, which actually Heschel coined as well. Um, but I would say that the moment of public declaration can include truths that actually speak to an individual's truth without it being disruptive language. I don't think that theologically there's such a difference between Asher Kervanu and Asher Bachar Banu Im. I think it's a preferred language. I mean, I didn't grow up with Kaplan language, but if I did, it would be home for me, and no other language would speak that way. It's like the translation of Ashrei, as silly as that sounds. I hear my father saying the English responsive reading of Ashrei, and who, who provides their food in due season. That has to happen, otherwise it's not really the translation of Ashra. Um, and so I think that what we are comfortable with and what we're familiar uh, with is very, very soulful. Um, but to your question, is it better? I, I can't answer that. To the question of, is, is there a multiplicity of meaning possible in a way that a community can retain its norms and a semblance of them? Yes. I think change that happens gradually is healthy for a stable community. And if it can include the truth that the community subscribes to, it is preferable to not create rupture. And I don't think that's the reason to not change the liturgy, but I think it's an adequate response to the question. We can talk more. All right.
I think that's fair, and it is lovely, and it's beautiful language. There's no question of the grandeur and, and eloquence of Kaplan's formula. There's no question about that at all. Um, but your comment reminds me of um, well, this debate that I had. Um, I was involved when the conservative movement was debating again about uh, gay and lesbian ordination. Um, I remember someone asking a question of Rabbi Jeremy Kamenovsky, who's a teacher of mine, and they said, so you're saying that it's possible to make this change, aren't you stepping on to the slippery slope? Which is always the argument that someone unsure about change says. Once you're stepping on the slippery slope, everything's up for grabs. Um, and he said something really, really profound. You have to know some halacha to know why this is such a simple and important statement. So I'll unpack it in a second. He said, somewhere between a Kohen marrying a Grusha and driving to shul on Shabbos, the conservative movement decided to live on the slippery slope. The Kohen, the priest, marrying a grushas, a woman who had been divorced, is prohibited biblically. And the conservative movement responded to that. Rabbi Arnold Goodman has the tshuva in the 80s on that topic. And driving to shul is something that halakhically had been forbidden. And the conservative movement decided decades ago that it was permissible to drive to shul and home on Shabbat. In fact, it was a larger campaign called the Enhancement of the Observance of the Shabbat, which said if you have someone who is ill, Drive to them. Call them on Shabbat. Do the things you think you're not supposed to do. Better to be connected than disconnected on Shabbat. So, Art, to your point, I understand that if one change is introduced, and a significant one theologically at that, what's to say other changes can't be? And I think the answer is not every change happens just because change can happen. The big difference between conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism, at least in their theoretical constructs, is Reform Judaism is built on the verb of reform, change, and Conservative Judaism is built on the model of not so much, not so fast. What was the big reason that in uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, uh, Conservative Judaism called then Positive Historical Judaism was created? Because somewhat at a convention of Reform rabbis suggested that the sermon be delivered in German. That was unacceptable. Too much. Too much. In America, it was a very different and more extreme reaction, which was the first gathering of reform rabbis to be ordained by this group now called Reform. Uh, the celebratory uh, meal famously became known as the Trafe Banquet, because in order to eliminate the moderates from the reform camp, every violation of the dietary code was utilized. I use those as two examples because conservative Judaism believes in change. That's something to be proud of not to be shy about. The question is, is there such thing as graceful traditional change that actually says that some things will change and some things won't? And in fact, one of the hardest parts of being a non-Orthodox community, and it's true in the Orthodox world too, de facto, even if not officially, is that the answer is, we have a Marada Atra. We have a rabbi in our community. And the decisions are not infallible. If at a certain point, the rabbi, and in our case it's me, issues psaq, issues a ruling that is out of sync with the community's acceptable approach, I won't remain the rabbi of the shul, which means ultimately that the consensus of the community and the trust in my decision-making process, that's the authority of the community, and that's how halacha spells out here. So is it true that one change is permissible and the other one could just as well be legitimate? Yes. Are both going to be legitimate practices for us? No. Am I always right? No. If I step too far out, I'll know how not right I was. But in this one, I feel confident making a liturgical decision. The kids and blue moms, to me, there's no... Um, I stopped doing it because I'm called 100 and I'm called... Um, me called... My 
right? So that's one point we don't want to really. So I won't say Imkol. Mikol, I love it for the Tibetans. And, right, exactly. But but I feel like historically there's a deal. Yeah, so I look, I, I appreciate where you're coming from on it, uh, both parts of what you said, actually. One of the responses is, I think, um, and it's not meant to sound snarky at all, it's no one is obligated to have an aliyah. And the choice that someone makes to not have an aliyah is a perfectly fine choice. There are only eight aliyot on a, any given Shabbat morning, and there are lots of people who don't have aliyot, not on principle. Um, and I think that were this an impositional text where everyone were expected to say it, that would be a different question. And given the fact that no one is obligated to have an aliyah, that's important. It might not feel good, but it's a person's choice to say no. And that's integrity, and I respect it. The question of Red and Blue, which I love that book too, um, uh, is really interesting because it actually shows a way that Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Ha'amim can work without being a value judgment. I'm not saying you have to feel about it that way. I'm just saying it can be that way. I was chosen to be blue. If I'm in a crowd that's red, and I'll, you know, I can think of examples, including uh, when I went, I was just speaking about this today, so it's on my mind, after uh, Sandy Hook happened, um, I went to D.C., and I was the white man in the room. Um, it's not, I'm proud, it's none of that. It's, I'm different. I'm in a room where I'm unique, and it is, I think, inauthentic for a Jew not to feel that. I am me. I'll use Mr. Rogers instead. Everybody's different. Everybody's fine. I'm different. I'm fine. I'm different from all of you. I'm fine. I'm not better. I like me. I'm really glad I'm Mr. Rogers helped a lot. <laughs> and I think that theologically that is a possibility. I'm not saying that you have to find it in the language. I understand that you don't. But I think denying its possibility in the language, in the language is also problematic. Language is bigger than that. <laughs> Let me take two more comments, and uh, maybe three, and then uh, we'll, for now we'll call it an evening, but we will be continuing the context conversation beyond. And if outside of those you'd like to talk, I'm, I'm glad to continue this particular conversation. Lynn. I think that, I take what you said, all parts of it, to heart. What I would offer is that it was clumsy enforcement and integrity. It was clumsy enforcement of a norm and integrity. And I think that it's, it's important to hear how it felt, but also to clarify that if there was a mistake, it was in the way that I implemented our rules. Broad said, we'll do different readings. Meaning interpretations? Things that people regard as discretion. It was your life. You I was really particular. Let's be careful before you make the suggestion. Go ahead. Um, and then there's Torah. Let's presume that the answer to that is yes. Every blessing is meant to be recited as written. Exceptions need to be discussed way in advance okay. and aren't about brachot. And then there's the rest of the book. The answer is no. I just said that. So if you want to have a conversation that isn't about tonight's topic, we can. I'm just... But that's a... You're asking different questions. I'm giving a blanket answer to, saying that any changes would be radical exceptions, and the answer is no changes, period, to any of the language in the Sidur. If you'd like to explore that further, we could have a different conversation, but tonight is not about that. Yes. Ruby, did you? No, we say the Sidur. We say the Tefillah. Yeah, the individual prayer, I don't go to check what someone's well, doing personally. No, no, we're not, we're not a coercive community. Yeah, good, good, good. So the way that Jewish tradition typically responds to that question is keva versus kavana. Our goal is never that we be mechanistic, behavioral, we do the thing and it has no meaning. But when it comes to the question of what must I do to fulfill this ritual act, the answer is do the ritual act. So if someone comes up and they are reading from the transliteration and it's transliterating the blessing that we say, 
they have said the blessing, fulfilled that ritual act, that mitzvah. Our goal is we should learn, we should know it, it should have meaning for us, we shouldn't be satisfied at that. But the reason why, and this is in the Gemara and Masechet Brachot, that it says, do mitzvot require kavanah? Do mitzvot, do ritual acts, uh, commands, require intention, require what we would call meaning? The answer is no, they do not. Why? Because if, in order to fulfill my religious obligation to say the Shema, for instance, I needed to close my eyes and feel the heavens shake, I likely would never fulfill that obligation, maybe once in, a, in an epiphany moment. But if my obligation is to do the thing, then I can feel good enough. I did it. And maybe one day I'll get to a place of depth. So the difference between someone who comes up to do it with transliteration is that they're doing what we do. Someone who wants to do it differently than we do it is not doing what we do. It's not that they're doing something that God frowns at, but what the person who's reading transliteration is doing is being part of the community in its structure, and another person is trying not to, or, or isn't comfortable being. Wait, there was someone who hadn't asked. Really. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'll take that as an opportunity just to, for now, sort of close with a few thoughts. They'll be first in response to what you just said, and then I'll close, and then we'll say we're done, and then we won't leave, because Jews don't. <laughs> um, I'm a white, straight man. I don't know what it is to be marginalized. I'm a Jew, so I know, but I don't, I don't really know. Um, whenever I am asked a question like that, and I am pretty frequently because of work that I do and, and whatever else, um, I'm really humbled because the kind of answer that I give, who am I to give this answer? Who am I to think about um, being pushed and not included or marginalized or called an abomination by the Torah? Um, so I'll give the story that I give humbly because it's not mine humbly because there's no other way to give it. So um, a teacher in our community, a, a very dear friend of mine, Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, tells this story often. He's the author of the book, uh, Wrestling with God and with Men. Um, he is uh, the first and so far still the only openly gay Orthodox rabbi uh, in the world. Um, though he's not the only gay Orthodox rabbi in the world, he's the only open one so far. Um, and he recognized that he was gay when he was younger, struggled mightily against it, and um, the moment that would make him hurt most, pushed him to just real darkness, uh, was on Yom Kippur. When in the afternoon of Yom Kippur, we read the section of Leviticus that calls him an abomination. Um, so he would sit in the back, just crushed, God hates me, I'm dying. And then over the course of his life, and he does a better telling than anyone else can do, obviously, um, he starts standing for that aliyah, crying still, I'm sure. Um, and then eventually became his custom, and in the community where he davens, it remains his custom. Um, but now he takes that aliyah, and he grips the Eitz Chaim, holds it, white knuckle. I don't know what it is to grapple. He knows what it is. And I believe in that um, is a really important statement that the Torah isn't done being given, and that I know that people use the phrase God wrestlers way too much without really... I mean, a lot of us, I want to give us all credit, but it's, it's a very easy word to say. But when it comes to the wrestling, you know, I'm a social activist. There is a lot of problematic stuff in our Torah when it comes to the other, because they're darker, or because they're my cousin and not my sister. Right? How it spells out, and Shelley pointed to it very gracefully, but how it spells out in modern politics, right? We actually, as a Jewish community, have some power now. Woe is us. And the Torah giving us guidance in a moment of powerlessness that then we learn from after being traumatized and now having power. Woe is everybody. We're not going to do it right. No one does, but... That doesn't matter. We, we're not doing it. Um, and so how we deal with the Torah that is problematic is incredibly, incredibly important. I could talk for a while about it, but we'd still not solve it. 
And I think ultimately the question of problematic text helps this conversation fit into a larger context because it isn't actually only about this blessing. But when it comes to communal norms, I really do think that we owe it to ourselves to see Judaism the way philosophers like Levinas have, which is the totality of the meaning of Judaism is what makes it holy, and that that is based on the number of people working to find meaning in it. I would never apply the prophet and the military approach of Joshua to statescraft. There are those who would. I have work to do as a Jew to make sure that doesn't become the dominant Jewish voice. To, to close for now, but to keep the thorns prickly and to keep us aware that there is work yet to do and that no one generation's norms are meant to be the eternal norms. That's not who we see ourselves to be. There's not canon law in Judaism and there's no dogma. We believe radically differently and we show up and we might be davening having, you know, if there are 20 of us in the room, 40 notions of God, some of us having a notion that there is none. It's the classic joke, right? Grandpa, why do you go to shul? He says, well, I, you know, I sit next to Goldberg. Goldberg goes to shul to talk to God. I go to shul to talk to Goldberg. <laughs> and by the way, I have to say, there's authentic practice in that too, and it's not a halachic question, it's how it feels. So there's this classic midrash that the first time you hear it, well, I don't know, the first time I heard it as, as a child, I was like, okay, it's a sweet story. Then I heard it, and I was like, oh my God, that makes everyone look terrible. And then I actually thought about it. So here's a story, you probably know it. God wanted to give the Torah. So God went to the first group and said, will you accept my Torah? And the group said, well, what's in it? I said, well, don't steal. And people said, oh, no, 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 we, we steal. <laughs> we can't accept the Torah. God says, okay, it's not for you. Goes to another group, says, will you accept my Torah? And that people said, no, well, what's in it? And God says, don't kill. And they said, well, no, we kill. We, we can't accept that. And God says, fine, not for you. Finally, after going to every other nation, God goes to the Israelites, goes to the Jews. He says, will you accept my Torah? And the Israelites say, not seven ishma. We'll do, and then we'll learn. Before the content, we said yes. I remember thinking, we're amazing. <laughs> we're so good. We accepted Torah. And then I realized God offered it to us last. And that the other peoples, for as dark as they were depicted by this rabbinic midrash, they had the integrity to say no. <laughs> Um, and so one of, the things, one of the things that I think we are called, we are called to be mindful of, is that when we stand in relationship with Torah, it might be, and actually Franz Rosenzweig, a German Jewish philosopher, suggested that the content of revelation is relationship. That it's not standing in the midst of all the meets vote that puts me in relationship with the cosmos. It's standing because I'm standing there in relationship. Sinai is before me and Torah is not done. That relationship is what revelation. Within that, all of this God language, all of the not God language, all of it is there. All of it's the same. Within one grouping of this people that has a very bizarre story that leads us to be the last offered and least aware of the Torah that we accepted, right? it leads us to be in relationship. So whether or not God chose us in the way that it's typically read, or God chose us because everybody else said no first, there are ways to read the story where we don't look so good, and in fact, maybe that's how we should feel when we say the blessing. I'm not all that. I'm only this. Right? So what I wish for us is actually that we grip Torah white-knuckled because there's a whole lot of it that needs our attention. And the world doesn't need a literal pouring out of its words. The, word, the world needs people to process it with their hearts. So I thank everyone for being here. I thank the Ritual Committee and the Education Committee for hosting this. And I look forward to the continuation of the conversation as we continue to learn together. Have a good night, everyone.